0: What up all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for episode 212 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Antoinette Marchfelder from Mono Tigre Designs. And this was such an awesome conversation, a conversation that I could really, really relate to, a conversation that took me on this beautiful ride as I went back in time to all the various places I've been around the world, the different kind of experiences that I've had, the time I've spent living as an expat. Well, Antoinette, as I tell her and as you'll hear in the episode, she's in the top five of the coolest stories in the way that she designed her life at 21 to live in a very, very rural community on the northeastern coast of Costa Rica. It is so cool to hear how she did it, what she did, and the lifestyle that she experienced for 25 years, You know, a lot of which was without electricity, some of which was without running water living in the jungle in a small community on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica where there were no cars. She commuted around by boat because as she describes, it was very much like the Amazon. And these are the kinds of stories that just get me so excited. And I get so creative in the ways I think about my life and what I'm trying to create for myself. And because of the experiences that I've had, realize that it's not all flowers and rainbows in these types of places. Like It's definitely a hard life, but so beautiful and how connected you become. Um, With the environment in which you live, the people you are surrounded by, the community in which you're a part of, you feel like you are an active participant in your own existence, survival. And that might sound silly to some of you, but when you experience it as an expat, as somebody who lives in these type of places or has lived in these type of places, her story just becomes so vivid in your imagination because you can totally relate to some of those experiences. And that's what happened to me. I got lost in the conversation just in my imagination and where she was, and I could… Feel some of the things that she was going through because I had felt similarly in certain moments in the places that I've lived. And I really love this story. Antoinette is a beautiful human being. She's doing some really cool stuff with her art. She heard about Misfits and Rejects from Kat Cocolette's episode because she's a student of Kat Cocolette trying to take her art online, become a digital nomad. And if you're a listener out there who has a story that you'd like to share with the audience, please reach out to me. I love having people reach out, offering to tell their story about either being an expat, having some cool travel stories, being an online digital nomad entrepreneur. Please don't hesitate. Shoot me an email. We'll try to get you on the show. I love hearing from you. Antoinette was one of those types of people who, again, heard Kat's story as a follower of Kat, reached out to me. And now you're hearing her story and how she did it. So please check her out at Mono Tigre Designs. She's a really cool artist doing some awesome stuff. And her story is just incredible. If you're a first-time listener, please hit subscribe. If you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do that in one of two ways you can head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop, pick up a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt. They're super comfortable. I love getting photos of different expats and travelers and just fans around the world who have bought one. They send me a photo. i love to throw those up on my Instagram stories. You can also support Misfits and Rejects by heading over to patreon.com backslash misfitsandrejects and then giving a monthly donation. All is appreciated. Nothing is expected. I have some patrons who are giving $1, some $5, some $25. As I said, it's not expected. It's greatly appreciated. It all helps produce Misfits and Rejects week in and week out, trying to deliver some really cool stories that hopefully inspire you to take that first step into the unknown. And with that said, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you. I hope you enjoy this story with Antoinette Marchfelder from Monotigue Designs. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just
1: always too many guns and too many bad attitudes.
0: I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Antoinette Marchfelder from Mano Tigre Designs. Antoinette, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's really yeah, good. Yeah, it's a
0: pleasure. That was uh, we just did a false start. <laughs> and we're we're back in the game now. But um yeah, you reached out because you heard Kat Coccolat's episode 207 and you take classes from her on Skillshare. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you reaching out. It's always nice to hear somebody who connects with the message. And then in and your little bio you had talked about, you know, living in a small little place in Costa Rica, which I'd never really heard of. And upon researching it more instantly knew I had to get you on the show. And in hearing that, you know, before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about where you're at right now and maybe a little bit about your upbringing?
1: Okay. Well, I now am in New Jersey. Um, I grew up in Connecticut, was born in France, but have been in the United States since I was three until I moved to Costa Rica. So over the last... Eight years I've been here in New Jersey, uh, kind of rebuilding, starting over my life, and really focusing on the arts.
0: Do you still have family there? I do not. No, so you just went back to some place that was familiar. Like, why'd you? Yeah, why'd you go back if you didn't necessarily have to for family reasons?
1: Back where to New Jersey. Uh, I had to start kind of an all over again, and a friend of mine offered me a job in this area. I see. That kind of gave me a reset to, to get moving.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I can relate. I have always come back to Southern California just because I have job opportunities as well. And I guess that's how we usually do it when we have to make money.
1: Yeah. I, and I didn't have anything happening in Connecticut that would help me start over again. So
0: Nice. But yeah, pre-show, you said that you grew, you started in France. That's where you were born.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then your dad was a chemical engineer and, and kind of moved the family around quite a bit.
1: Uh, yeah. In the first three years. And then we settled in Connecticut.
0: Did you grow up traveling? Was that something within you that you knew you wanted to do at some point?
1: When I was younger, like we would go home for for my mom home. She was from England. So we would go back to England and spend our summers there. Um, I think by the time I was five or six, I had been to Spain and obviously France all over Europe. Uh, So that's always been there Uh, for me. I think travel is a beautiful way to learn people's cultures and and explore and get just, I, I like the whole adventure of it. Uh, unfortunately it has not happened in a long time.
0: <laughs> you kind of mentioned pre-show that, you know, you never really felt like you fit in. There might've been something going on, like, you know, an undiagnosed ADD or something like that. or
1: Probably. Yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of, at least the friends that I have, they're all artistic. It seems to be a battle at times. Um, I, I grew up, you know, getting in trouble for daydreaming a lot. I was not very academic, but in the arts was always where I felt most at home.
0: And what what kind of medium do you like the most when you are being artistic?
1: So I the two, as far as painting on surfaces like paintings, it's going to be acrylic mixed media is mostly what I do. Uh, but I'm also a face and body artist, so that's face paint, which is a high pigmented makeup. Um, and that's normally what I'm doing. I do uh, a lot of corporate parties over the summer. Uh, COVID really knocked that out though. So I'm not working in that at the moment and will not be until things are clear.
0: Yeah. how did you come across cats stuff?
1: So because of COVID and because I couldn't face paint, I was trying to find other things to keep just mentally busy, but also learning new New things, and I got on Skillshare, and she was one of the first teachers I discovered, and she's just got a great way of getting the points across, and I had never gotten into digital art, and that was my, um, kind of my intro was with her, which was perfect.
0: What did she present that captured your eye that you felt like, oh, was it just her literal like artistic style, or was it something else?
1: It's her easy flow with it but the fact that she could live anywhere in this world and still have income and that i am definitely an entrepreneur and that really resonated with that part of me um that having different streams of income and just to just to go back a little bit with the face painting i'd always had this underlining feeling like you know all my eggs are in one basket if something happened to this what can I fall back on? And I've always done a lot of different things. Um, I have an Airbnb, which also kind of went under during, during COVID. Um, so I, you know, I've just always had to try to have a little hustle here and there. I do mm-hmm. pet sitting with a few people, um, you know, always just trying to have something happening. So with Kat was, you know, here, she's got things licensed and out there. And other than the original artwork, once she gets it all loaded up, you know, it's there. And she's. I know, she does an incredible job marketing her product, but she's now at that point where she's got enough followers um, that she's producing. She almost, I'm not saying she doesn't have to do anything anymore, but, you know, she's invested the time and the energy into pulling that up.
0: Were you familiar with the digital nomad scene prior to stumbling across all. her?
1: Not at all. I had no idea.
0: So that wasn't even on your radar that people do this like Kat oh, does it?
1: Yeah. No, I was so intrigued by that. It was, it was, uh, I, you know, I'm not happy with the whole COVID thing, but I have to say there's been some really good, you know, things have come from it for me, uh, in an artistic sense. And that's one of them is learning about that lifestyle.
0: Yeah. I think about it a lot and it does get brought up quite a bit on this podcast where it's individuals like yourself, like me have kind of at times been forced by life, even though we didn't necessarily want to take that turn. Right or left, yeah. but life's just like, no, this is kind of where you need to go. For whatever reason, life is determining that. When did you decide it was time to maybe try something new and, and get out of the States?
1: Uh, that was never planned at all. Um, I was 21, 20, 21 years old. I was working with a glassblower who was a fantastic artist. I was apprenticing under him. Uh, probably the best job I've ever had in my life working for another person. And he never worked during the summer because it's so hot. And he was also in the process of moving to upstate New York at that time. This is when I was still in Connecticut. And meanwhile, I was doing volunteer work at the reptile house at the Bronx Zoo, uh, feeding crocodiles and snakes and monitor lizards. And I, I've always loved herpetology, uh, the study of reptiles, and was fascinated by them. And so I'd go there my Saturday and Sundays all day and work, and work at the zoo and loved it and I bartended and worked with my friend with the, with the glass blowing. so over the summer that year they had a program to go work with sea turtles in Costa Rica and Tortuguero is the biggest uh nesting beach for the green sea turtle in the Caribbean so it's very famous for that if you google anything about turtles it's going to come up so I went for two weeks and it was incredibly remote uh this was before tourism hit Costa Rica this was in 1985, so I'm giving my age away. <laughs> um, and I met my husband-to-be. He was one of the first people I met. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. Didn't really think much about him. I was so f- in awe of the nature around me. I flew in on a Cessna, on a grass strip. Uh, that area does not have cars. It's all rivers. It's like the Amazon. And I was blown away by the nature, by the sea turtles, and just by everything. And and within a week, so he was actually the guide and caretaker of the research station. So he would take us out every day on a boat and show us the jungle. And this man was Tarzan. I mean, he was amazing. He could spot not only the sloth, but the sloth's baby up in a tree 50 feet up, you know, like just amazing eyesight and would point out things and just was very entertaining and i you know again didn't speak spanish he didn't speak english i was there for the turtles um and if one of the girls that was on the on the trip who was from costa rica who was bilingual was telling me that she had a crush on one of the guys and if i had a crush on anybody i was like yeah but you know i can't speak his language it's okay it's no big deal well, she went and told him so next thing i know he's focusing on me and we had at that point they had um a dance in the in the village, and the village didn't have electricity. They had a generator that was turned on in the evening so people could cook their dinners and for the dance night. So I went, and he kept asking me to dance. And long story short, I went back to the States absolutely miserable, culture shocked, and just really didn't know what direction to go. Plus, my glassblower friend had not finished setting up his, his uh, studio yet. So uh, about a month later, I decided, well, let me go, let me go back. Can we just see? Cause I really had a good time with this guy, but I don't know anything about him. And this is just, you know, this is me impulsive. So I went back and again, long story short, 25 years later, <laughs> um, we ended up getting married. Uh, I, we were together for five years before that and then got married and started, uh, he did sports fishing, which he still does. and I eventually opened a shop and we have two children who are now adults and I homeschooled because there was no choice. And I lived without electricity for eight years and really became Costa Rican because I had no Americans at the first, at that time. Uh, I think I was there 10 years before I started meeting other Americans that were coming down into that area and settling there. We, tourists would come through, but not, not anybody settling like me. So it was it was quite the drastic change culturally uh, in, in so many ways.
0: Did you back then like write him letters, or did you just like leave, or then just show up a month later?
1: Uh, because it because the program to tag sea turtles was through the Bronx Zoo. I knew all the teams that were going down, so I had I wrote a letter, had a friend translate it to Spanish, and sent it down with the next group, telling him, "I'm coming down. I don't know anything about you. I'd like to get to know you a little better." If you don't, that's okay. I'll come down and, you know, I'll travel. And it was a beautiful relationship, Uh, honestly. I I cannot, you know, it's sad that it ended, which was unfortunately kind of my side did that. Um, I was ready for change and he wasn't as far as location and place. And so there was a lot of friction at the end. Um, Culturally, he is from a very, very remote space, And it just got to a point where, you know, as the kids got older, it didn't fit anymore. So, but I have to say like, you know, my children grew up learning the right names for birds. And, you know, my my son would come home and say, I just saw a pathology warbler, uh, you know, he, he actually did his own like tagging program where he caught lizards and wrote on a magic marker, wrote on the side of their bellies, So he was tracking and doing data collecting. Um, so it was, it was quite the beautiful way to raise a child.
0: It sounds romantic and very beautiful. And I think a lot of people listening are very intrigued to hear more about it because I'd like to learn more as well. So the first eight years, sounds like you were the only gringa. because mm-hmm. I've looked at the, the place now on Google maps and it's still extremely small.
1: Yeah. It's, like it's ridiculous. No, it's got about 3000 people now. Okay. Yeah. But, but it, you know, it got built up. So tourism hit, I would say, 1987 was when Oscar Arias, the president of the time, won the Nobel Peace Prize. And that put Costa Rica on the map. Um, it was, before that, was all palm, palm-thatched huts, you know, dirt pathways. Uh, the only school there was a one-room schoolhouse, which is why I decided to homeschool. Now they have up to high school, which is great, but the way they, the infrastructure, how they built the community to me is just, it lost all its charm. Everything cement, they, they changed all the little pathways with this concrete giant path all through the community. Um, I was there a year and a half ago and I couldn't find my way around. It just, the whole, everything changed. Um, and everybody, like I was the first souvenir shop, uh, gift shop that was, that, that started there. I started in 1991. Now there's about fifty of them. It's just it just way overkill of hotels and all on top of each other. So I, you know, it makes me sad. I'm happy I don't live there anymore. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't the right fit for me now as as I've just moved on to something else. Um, when I lived there though, we were my my husband at the time, and I had a twelve acre property uh, that was three miles out of town, bordered by two rivers and on either side, and on the other two sides by rainforest. So every day I saw howler monkeys, spider monkeys, toucans, parrots. Uh, I put out food, like bananas and stuff, and have all these beautiful birds come down. Uh, very very connected to nature, uh, which is something I miss deeply there.
0: And your children are still there?
1: No, they actually moved to Indiana. Uh, my daughter is married and to a Costa Rican, and my son lives with them. They're all in their 20s and they're just working. I'm, I'm like, why Indiana? But they're very happy there. Uh, I think East Coast, where, at, where I'm at, is too fast paced and too abrupt. Uh, Costa Ricans are extremely sweet people. They do not like confrontation. They will not like you. you they won't confront you unless it's about football. <laughs> <soccer>. <laughs> but on the whole, like if you have a misunderstanding with somebody, they'll be all, you know, flowers and perfume about the whole thing they're not going to make a big confrontation whereas new jersey you know it's like what are you doing (laughs) it's it's Mm -hmm. all in your face kind of thing so my my children my son was up here for a little while and he's like i I don't like this so so indiana seems to fit that um sweeter friendlier way Mm -hmm.
0: now were there when you first arrived, were there other expats? that had spent significant amount of time st- a significant amount of time down there, or was were you kind of the first one to stay for that amount of time?
1: Up uh, in Costa Rica,
0: yeah, in that
1: um, there. So the research station um, at that at that time, the manager of the station was a man from the states. Mm-hmm. So he'd been there. His girlfriend was from England, who's actually. I don't know where she is now, but at that point, she was one of the top artists. She would do all these um, posters of nature. So in the poster would be like Costa Rica's rainforest and would have like 50 animals in the rainforest with all with the uh, diagram of like the code of which every creature was. Um, Mm -hmm. She was was quite famous in that area. So she didn't really live in Tortiguero. They would come back and forth. But so he was there. And then I know that one of the park guards had a girlfriend that was American. Mm. That was before me. And that was the only one that I think actually lived in that area. But I never met her.
0: Yeah. I think for a lot of listeners, including myself at times, you know, it sounds so romantic and just like everybody wants to do it. But I like to always try to bring an element of realness to the story where it's like you glazed over like, oh, no water, no electricity. Like, what does that actually mean for your daily, you know, for eight years? What's your daily look like?
1: It's so easy to live without electricity, but not running water is horrible. Um, so at that, so in the beginning, I was at the research station or in the village for like the first two years or so, two mm-hmm. three, and both of those places had a generator. So everybody had you have your own well, you have um, you can get an electric pump that or, or a gas pump that pumps up your water to a tower. So you, there's ways around it. Um, at one point, I had the only t- television we had was a little black and white TV hooked to a car battery. And watched like reruns of stuff. I actually learned a lot of my Spanish that way. Um, when I got married, we lived in a tent on that property. We had just gotten that property with another friend of ours from the States. So we lived in a tent for eight months. Uh, I had I caught water. We we actually built like a roofed in lean to or, or the first structure of our house. We built our house together, a septic tank together, everything. Like I've done everything from scratch. Uh, and so we would collect water off the roof for our, you know, washing our dishes. Uh, the toilet was a hole in the ground with palm fronds all around. Uh, it was very, very remote. We didn't have to really worry about anybody creeping up on us. Uh, you know, and, and all this was like, I remember thinking, like, I'm living in complete, like, poverty in a way. Yet the river's right there. And we caught incredible fish every day. We would go crabbing, shrimping, we'd get rock lobster. Uh, I had avocado tree, like it just like I was eating the most abundant food, but had nothing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and it's not a bad thing to go through because now like going through things like COVID or even starting all over again in the States, I have a lot of patience and I don't need a lot to function. So, so it was, uh, it's a great training.
0: Thing. Absolutely. How, how long did you sustain life like that? Like how long did it take you to, how long did you live in the tent? before you actually could move That, that was
1: eight months. We were at, we were in the process of building our house. So we built, so once we got the the roof part up, we were able to move the tent up under that, but we still didn't have walls. Um, I've had scorpion issues. I've had snake issues. Like I've been bitten by snakes and stung by scorpions and, you know, the ants are horrible. <laughs> so you just kind of learn to deal with nature. So there, you know, that's kind of the gives me kind of bragging rights, like I've been stung by scorpions <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But it's also a pain, you know, especially when you're raising children and that there's that fear of them getting hurt. Uh, and so I, by the time we had our house built, I, I was now pregnant with my daughter. Still didn't have electricity, but we had a house. So the first year of my daughter, I had to wash all the clothes by hand, uh, which is not fun when you're using cloth diapers, but it, but it's part of life. The hardest with all that is drying because I'm in the rainforest and people tourists that I would meet later on when I had my shop, like, God, why is it raining so much here? And I'm like, rain forest <laughs> kind of put together. You know, this is part of the deal. We get 200 inches of rain a year. So if you wash clothes by hand, you're trying to wring them out. It never rings out. It's, it's, a, it's really hard. So that was a beautiful thing getting electricity to be able to get my laundry done. Um, just basic needs, right.
0: And you always were collecting water up until the point you were able to get like a well dollar, no, home I, like that. Up
1: until we got the well. So what we did, so we collected water off the roof. Um, and then for our drinking water, we had friends that owned one of the hotels. And so we would go and fill up 15 gallon,
0: mm-hmm. jugs
1: to bring those back. And, and
0: with like a water. motorcycle, like, are you walking with the 15 gallon jug?
1: No, This is all, there's no cars or there's no road. Everything is on a river. So we had a boat. Okay, and I we, see. We would drive our boat. I, I drove a boat every day to work, you know, once we got the shop going. So that's, that's the other thing I miss a lot is, is not being in a boat.
0: It's such an interesting story. And I mean, I meet a lot of interesting expats who live in some very unique situations and this is definitely in the top five.
1: <laughs> oh, <good. laughs>
0: I, I mean, th- <laughs> in Nicaragua, yeah, we have, you know, Gaia Ma, she, she started a, a wellness retreat on Ometepe Island and everything's sustainable. It's, it sounds very similar. Mm. But I think the rain aspect of it and just constantly being damp, and I'm assuming your clothes get moldy pretty quick if you don't like rotate them through the cycle of use.
1: Right, especially you know, in the beginning without electricity, that so you know, you have clothes lines as soon as you got some sunshine, your clothes are out on the line. Eventually, that um, when I had my shop, I'd be in the village. And I had put, you know, the laundry all out. Great, and I'm going to the village to go to work, and then rain hits, and I'm like,
0: oh, no,
1: <laughs> this stuff is all messed up again. Um, eventually, uh, after we had our, our my, my house was a little tiny Costa Rican ha- hut house. I never had a big American. I didn't have anything American styled. Um, I did do some tweaks in there, and had like I wanted hot water, even though I was in the jungle. I still wanted like access to certain things. Um, but one of the things that I had my husband build was a, um, a screened-in laundry room. So it had transparent roofing. And that way I could hang up my laundry, go, and if it rained, it didn't matter. It was all, you know, under under a roof drying. So that, that changed our lives drastically.
0: Is there an issue with drugs and crime?
1: Yeah. So the first, um, again, as I said, it was very remote. There was one policeman. Uh, when I was, you know, first there and there would be th- like, there'd be different things happening. Like the drownings was common, was common. Uh, where I am, there are, um, saltwater crocodiles, there's bull sharks, hammerheads, you know, there's all sorts of fun, barracudas. And we've had, um, friend, we had my, my husband's best friend was killed by sharks. Uh, he, my, my husband had, um, in fishing, he was fishing one morning uh, in the surf and he stepped on a stingray uh, and the sting went up into his calf about four inches up and it's a serrated edge sting stinger and it ripped his, uh, nicked his artery on the way out. So I had to, and this has happened to us several times. We've had accidents in our family um, where I've had to hire a Cessna plane and fly him out to the, to the main hospital and go through, I think we were in San Jose for a month um, at the hospitals doing treatment, and I, I took care of his dressings for about six to eight months afterwards because of the necrosis from the actual. Because the the stingray has a very slight poison, uh, but but the damage it had done to his leg was horrible. Uh, so so those that's the that's the downside. And when you were asking about you know living in a place like this and what you know people see it as oh how adventurous and how romantic and all that, it can be. Um, but I would always tell whenever tourists came to my shop, they're like, oh, we want to move here. This is the most amazing country. And I'm like, well, you're on tour. So think of it as your honeymoon for your marriage. You know, you come and you're just, everything's beautiful and you're just in love with this person or this country. And and I would just tell people, like, but come and stay here for six months. Don't make any investment. Don't don't quit your job. Don't do anything. Just come and really live. And, and one thing for me, um, because I was completely immersed in this culture, which is absolutely beautiful. It really is hard for me when I hear tourists moving, you know, retiring to Costa Rica and the only contact that they have with Costa Ricans is the maid or the gardener. I just, I hate that. You're just losing so much flavor and so much culture of this, of this place. The like, I've, I cook Costa Rican. I don't cook American. I don't like, everything about me um, has more of a Latino Mm -hmm. flair Mm -hmm. And I love that. And especially in a place like Tortuguero, um, people did not have a high education, yet their knowledge of medicinal plants is crazy. It's just, you could, there's one woman who's, she can't be more than four foot Mm ten. And she would, I would walk a path, within like a path of 20 feet, she would point out things. Oh, that's good for this if you have, you know you an infection. You take this, you make a tea, you do this, you did it. And just, she would just be pulling off flowers. And like, if you're, you know, having a problem with your hair falling out, you make a, you know, you make a, a tea uh, or, you know, a cold water thing with this hibiscus leaves or flowers. And then you, you know, you mash up the leaves and you put it on your hair. And
0: <laughs> they,
1: it just, just the knowledge is incredible. The hunters, my, my ex-husband was a hunter. Um, I am I'm pro-conservation, but I'm very respectful for what the community does. And when I first moved there, there was only 100 people. Of that 100 people, that might be four or five families only with lots of cousins and children and grandparents and everything. And I lived with one of the founders of this community for many years, Miss um, Juni. If, any, if anybody listening is going to co- Turkey to Ghetto, you need to go to Miss Junie's. Uh, she's famous. Uh, she is, uh, I think, originally from... San Andreas. her her father was from San Andres. Uh, she's Afro Caribbean, and Tortuguero is mostly an Afro Caribbean community. Um, so the food is very uh, similar to Jamaica. Uh, there's a lot of food cooked in in coconut milk, and you know, there's just there's just so much flavor and knowledge. I think uh, that doesn't come from a classroom.
0: Mm. No, it sounds incredible. I spent a little bit of time in Puerto Viejo, so okay. I feel like I understand the culture a little bit. You know, definitely. Right, you're-
1: Coast, it's yeah. way more
0: rural where you were so when you got there there's only a hundred people in the village yeah and now it's up to three thousand
1: uh probably yeah
0: okay yeah.
1: and there, yeah. and as people that have moved in from inland areas you know it's tourism when tourism hit and and again I so I was with my we, we were living on our property we, we weren't really having a steady income and a friend of mine that was uh, I had met down there there, at the research station they had gotten some grant money to do some new work in the community. Uh, one of it was getting a plan, a zoning plan done, conservation plan, what areas were, were, cause it, as I said, it was very remote and they didn't really have a lot of legal things put in place. Uh, so he was like, you should do a souvenir shop. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to do that. You know? <laughs> and he's like, no, I have friends that do it with a conservation group and in, in, from the capital, you know, you should try to do this. And I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. And I think four months went by or so and ran into him again. And here I'm still four months not working, trying to work. You know, again, we lived off of like what we caught eating, didn't have a really, you know, didn't have any kind of income. And uh, so he said it to me again. And I was like, you know what? That's kind of sounding better than what life is like now. So he connected me to this conservation group. That sold things. They had like their T-shirts and books and a couple of postcards. Really, not a whole lot of stuff. So I, they gave me a, a box of stuff on consignment, and I went back and I asked two hotels. At that point, now tourism was starting to hit, uh, and two of the hotels at that point. Um, I'm just trying to remember what I think. At that point, there was three hotels. Good, you know, hotels that people would come and do like a package tour. So I asked them if I could just set up a table at lunchtime. And yeah, sure, no problem. So set it all up and sold everything in an hour. And I'm like, oh, okay, this works. And so I went back. And so to, for this is the other thing. At that point, to travel, if I wasn't flying, it was a 14-hour day. So it would take me eight hours to get to Limón, Puerto Limón from San Jose, uh, and, and on a bus. And then from there, I usually would just stay the night. And then I would get up the next morning early and take... Uh, this boat that was called the Grand Delta. It was a diesel cargo boat that took passengers up and that was another eight hours up. So it was really going to San Jose wasn't a daily thing. It was, you know, once every four or five months or so. But at that point I was like, let me go, you know, and get more supplies and I'll come back and, you know, continue. And that's how I started my shop in 1991, not realizing I'm pregnant with my daughter and uh, again, at that point, tourism hadn't really hit hard, so properties were really cheap. So I was able to buy a piece of property in the village for $300. And my husband and his brother, I believe, um, got together and built me this little 10 by 10 palm thatched building. And that's how I started my, my shop. So, and I had it for that whole time I think 20, 20 years, 1991 until, yeah still there, Uh, and I expanded up to – I ended up building an octagon-shaped building that's about a 1,000 square feet, really beautiful shop that I've just sold it two years ago, last year, to a really good friend of mine who's doing payments for six years. (laughs) But she, she as a little girl, would come into my shop um, as a nine-year-old, and I used to color with the kids. I would have coloring books or paper, and I would sit with about 15 – Village kids and paint with them, and so she was one of those children, and now she's an adult I'm sorry I'm near a road um, she's now an adult, and she has she's changing it to a restaurant that for me was
0: having a palm thatched um, gift shop in the middle of town how what's security like? I mean, I'm still like in my mind in the places that I've been, like that place would be robbed so quickly.
1: <laughs> you know, back then, it wasn't as bad it did unfortunately. Uh, you couldn't do that. Um, but I had the way the building was, we, it was palm thatch, but it was a wooden structure, and we didn't have um, people coming in the shop. It was like a big window that I would open up a big shutter window mm-hmm. that was on a pulley system. So it would open up my big window, and people would come to that. And then I, and then I had my t shirts and little things that I sold, and then we could lock it all up. So we were okay. I, I, I never got robbed. Um, unfortunately, crack hit that area, and people would smoke with Mm -hmm. marijuana Mm -hmm. and I saw a lot of these kids because I've known them since they were babies in their mother's arms became crack addicts and at one point I was helping get I I coordinated to get them to a rehab Mm -hmm. outside of the city and the problem with that getting somebody into rehab is you know they live literally in torn shorts and that's it they have no shoes they have no clothes they're you know it's sort it's 85 degrees all year round it rains a lot but like you know, you survive, there's, there's, there's no, you're not going to die of exposure. So I would have to go find these kids like sweaters and shoes and socks and, you know, clothing that they could actually go. Cause most of the rehab centers that I knew were in San Jose. Mm-hmm. Which older. So, but um, yeah, that was, I think I, I helped about ten ten 10 kids, but it, most of them came back, unfortunately, and weren't able to overcome the addictions. So, yeah. So, because of them, like you know, they they were the ones that were breaking into people's places, trying you know find money to support mm-hmm. their habit.
0: Mm-hmm. Because yeah, like a lot of the cocaine coming up from South America happens to sometimes fall off boats in that area, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I have a story. <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't there. I didn't see this, but up the coast, uh, uh, I would say probably five miles up the coast towards towards Nicaragua, uh, a boat. Uh, show what do you call it It drifted up on shore and it was Mm -hmm. one of the big kayak boats canoes that they do it's like a wooden boat but they're big and it was completely uh covered in bullet holes but it had packs of cocaine i think it had like 500 kilos is what i was told Mm -hmm. and the villagers all went up there not all not like i I don't i'm not you know i don't know they were coming from different areas but they come up and they all grab stuff Mm -hmm. so literally within a week people that had like these really basic jobs making maybe a hundred dollars a month now had a brand new boat. One guy bought a hotel <laughs> just like all of a sudden, like what's going on here? You know, overnight, you know, people who had nothing a really basic lifestyle now are moving into, you know, buying brand new washing machines and boats and, you know, all this fancy stuff. And um, which was, you know, alarming, but it got more alarming when the owner of the boat came looking for them and mm-hmm. the people that I knew disappeared. Uh, I don't think they got killed, but they disappeared. They took off into the jungle, like in the middle of the night kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: it's not an uncommon story. I mean,
1: no, I was like, I don't want to know. I don't, you know, but at two in the morning we would hear the boats driving cause I'm, mm-hmm. I was living. So we're on right on the coast of the Caribbean. Um, there's a river between me and, and, the, and the beach, but I was a quarter of a mile from the mouth of the ocean. So we would hear these big boats in the, in the ocean out, miles out, and they're, and they're drug runners. Yeah. Or postcards or something going through. But it's just, yeah. So it, it was a wild, wild west. I mean,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So then what, what was your breaking point? Do you feel like when, when the things start getting not that much fun anymore or like not that fun?
1: I think for me, it's a personal thing and it was, um, I hate to say it, but it was a midlife uh, thing. Mm. My, my, my shop was doing really, really well. I had at this point expanded. I had a, I, I, not to be like patting myself on the back but one of the nicest shops I think in Costa Rica. Uh, I would, I would travel around Costa Rica and look around and be like, I'm not seeing anything. I I was very, uh, I I painted a lot of my own stuff. I I designed all my t-shirts, but I also went, directly to artisans and had them do things that Mm -hmm. they would sell in the same area and just had a wonderful relationship with a lot of these people. Um, And I had a girl working with me who started, she was looking for a job cleaning and she started like cleaning my shop once a week. And within like two weeks, she was trying to communicate with tourists without knowing English, but had learned enough picking up in my shop to be able to say, what what size do you want? And (laughs) and show them where the t-shirts were. And I was like, wow. And she was from Nicaragua. and had a young son. And so I, you know, said like, I'll help you. And, you know, you can once you come work a little bit more. And so I trained her and she eventually was able to run the whole shop. Okay. So I think what happened to me was my kids were now getting older. They were um, functioning by themselves. I was, my daughter was now going to a high school in San Jose. My son was still being homeschooled, but I think what, what I'm trying to say is that my life was kind of plateauing. Mm-hmm. So my shop didn't really need me. My kids didn't really need me. And I was like, what's next? And my husband, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but he's from that culture. And he was like, you should be happy sitting on the porch watching the boats go by. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So so things got, I'm not going to get a whole personal story about that, but it was, yep. um, things got conflicted. And again, he's Latino male. So he started kind of flexing his macho muscles and started having more and more fights. And it just got to a point where it was like, this is not healthy. And so at that point I moved to San Jose and then just, it just financially I was having such a hard time. So uh, a friend of mine heard what was going on, you know, at this point now I've reconnected back to the States. I had not been home in 14 years. I had really lost contact with everybody from my youth uh, because of not having electricity. I had no communication. So at this point now, we're in 2007, 2008, I finally got the internet and found account on Facebook. And so I reconnected with all these people. And that was, I think, a lot of the problem as well. Uh, as long as I was in Tortuguero, where he was, my husband was, he was fine. But as soon as I started kind of communicating with people that he didn't know, I think mm. that made him uncomfortable. So, yeah. You know, so things happen and uh, had to start afresh, which I have done.
0: When did you start your bakery though? Did that kind of come at the midlife crisis point?
1: No, that was before that. So yeah, so we had the shop, my mom had passed and she had left me a little bit of money and that was right in front of my shop. And I was like, I love to bake. So I, and, and again, tourism was happening, but there was definitely lacking in that area. Um, there was no internet cafe, which is what I was trying to do. Uh, internet was, I mean, it was really new. It was dial up, There was like, you couldn't really get phones where, I think there was now eight phones available and people were fighting for these lines. So it was, it was not there yet. Um, But we ended up getting um, Costa Rica as a country was given like three optic fiber. I don't understand all the technical part of it. And Tordiguero was given one of those. And so all of a sudden we had internet and we could do more things. So my, my goal was to do this little restaurant, um, Bakery that uh, would cater to tourists that are going on uh, A lot of them go on canoe trips at 5 in the morning So I wanted to do something where you know muffins and cinnamon rolls and fresh coffee Send them on their way. That was my my goal and it it didn't really it, it kind of It was very favored like people enjoyed it because it was I was offering food that nobody was doing there But I couldn't find the people to work for me. And I couldn't, I I had too much going on. Um, At that point, I was volunteering with the high school. Um, I I ran a program teaching the kids how to paint. Um, We were painting, we were making uh, handmade bookmarks and selling them at my shop. And the money was going to help their school. So I had, I I was able to get the children from pre-kinder all the way up to high school to be involved in different aspects, plus their parents. It was actually a whole community. event that was really fun to do so I I just had too many things going on so eventually just wanted to I think I I tried to run it for about two years and just didn't didn't take off so
0: I can relate in that I was coming to my end of my 10 years in Nicaragua and and running out of money and running out of creative ideas and I love to bake as well so I started a bakery and uh
1: okay mine only
0: lasted six months so like I got to break even but I was so broke and undercapitalized at the end I just I
1: couldn't do it yeah. And that's it. Th- and that's, it's a whole other animal, right? I mean, it's like, okay, if I don't sell this today, what do I do with it? That's a lot of perishable.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, yeah, but I did put like, nobody was doing pizzas. Nobody was doing a lot of the big, and, and my thing was like, how many tourists Costa Rican's not known for their sweets at all. Like, I mean, they, they have a certain couple of little, you know, specialties, but I'm a child. I love chocolate. So I was like, you know, the chocolate chip cookies, brownies, and people would come in and be like, oh my God, I haven't had a cookie for all my life. I was like, see, I could, I knew I had a market, you know, for the right people. But I, it just, it just didn't, it was just hard. And I got to the point where I was like, yeah, I, I can't do this anymore.
0: Were you making your own fresh chocolate with the cacao in the area?
1: Oh God, no, 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 no. But I had, I would have to go to San Jose. A lot of times i bought like chocolate slabs and have to cut them all mm-hmm. up and make chocolate chunk for, mm-hmm. for the chips. But,
0: and then one more cultural question. You had the Ticos, the Costa Ricans. And then did you have mosqu- mosquito people as well, the indigenous? There,
1: where I was, they, um, no like tribe, but there is definitely, like my my ex-husband, you can definitely see he's got indigenous yes. blood. Uh, I don't know if it's mosquito or not, mm-hmm. uh, but I would not be surprised. And just back to the culture also, uh, because of Costa Rican. Um, if you go up to Nicaragua on the Atlantic coast, there's a town called Bluefields. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you've been there. Yeah and it's all Jamaican descent, mm-hmm. English-speaking. And most of, the, most of the Caribbean, Afro-Caribbeans in Tortuguero are from that area. So the Patois is now a mix, it's a Jamaican base, but it's now got indigenous and Spanish words thrown in. Mm-hmm. And when I first moved here, I was going to a church um, that was all Jamaican. And they were like, who are you? <laughs> and so I, like, as I got to know people, I was like, did you, did you ever use fever grass? you know, fever grass. And mm-hmm. they were like, what do you know about fever? You know, they, and there was lemongrass is used mm-hmm. for fevers. So I was like, what about Sfora C? They're like, who are you? Like, how do you know this? And it was just so intriguing to me that all these medicinal plants had been handed down generation to generation from Jamaica
0: mm-hmm.
1: to, you know, cause where I was, there was no doctor, you know? Mm-hmm. So you had to, you got sick, you took care of it yourself, you know, or, or didn't. <laughs> and, 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 just dealt with this. Stuff. Doesn't,
0: doesn't sorcery clean the blood? Isn't that what you use yeah, for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I took that in uh, Puerto Viejo.
1: It tastes terrible. Yeah, I never terrible. Did it. I like, I it.
0: <laughs> how far were you from Rio San Juan?
1: Uh, I was thirty miles. Yeah, yeah Did you ever take
0: miles. the boat up there?
1: Um, so in 1991, we had a big earthquake mm-hmm. uh, that hit Limon area, mm-hmm. and that whole area. So that that was how we used to travel was take the bus to Limon and then take a boat up the coast. Yeah. When that earthquake hit, the land went up and that whole area of mowing went on dry land. So, so that whole area where you would dock and get the, get the boats was no more. It's, it is now, but I mean, they had to dredge it to get water back in that area. So I, I was actually in San Jose when that happened and it took me two days to get home, but I had to go all the way up to the border and come down that way. And come down through Bar de Colorado, which is the northern Costa Rican town above Tortuguero, and come that way and come back down.
0: Which is a natural route. It just at the time wasn't the, the most commonly used one.
1: It's long. It takes yeah. forever. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. What an adventure. What a cool story. <laughs> and now you find you've been back in the States now eight years. Yeah. And so, go ahead.
1: Sorry. Um, so I had never painted on canvas. I'd always been, so I just, des- I designed my shop building. I designed the, the bakery. I renovated it my house. always did things, you know, there was no graphic designers out there. I didn't know what that was. I, you know, had to make my own stuff. Right. And when I came, but i had never painted on canvas. I'd never painted like for an art show. So when I came back up here, uh, didn't know anybody other than what that one friend and, I was emotionally pretty train wrecked at that mm-hmm. point. You know, the divorce was not pretty, um, and had you know starting over, didn't know anybody, had no family, no money. Like it, it took me a while to get sorted out. Um, but the first people that I met in this area, so I'm near Trenton, and Trenton has a pretty bad reputation in general of violence and crime. But my connection to Trenton is the artists and there's a lot of incredible graffiti artists. And I don't, I don't have anything bad to say about Trenton. The people that I met uh, welcomed me and embraced me and encouraged me. And I just got involved with the arts in that community. And one of the things that they do is a program called, or is an event called art all night. Um, And it's a 24 hour art show that anybody for free can participate, you know, and submit a piece of art. So I, that was the very first time I painted on canvas and it didn't sell, but it was so exhilarating to be part of something that drew in about 20,000 people. I mean, this thing goes crazy. They have 50 mm-hmm. bands for free mm-hmm. like music all night, all day uh, food trucks. It's just a, a, an incredible event. And so I just started getting more and more involved and now I'm just part of an incredible artistic community that inspires each other and are from all different walks of life. A uh, lot of incredible photographers, uh, mixed media artists, you know, graffiti works phenomenal. So, so yeah!
0: How was that repatriation for you coming back after so long?
1: It was hard. I, I remember one of my first, uh, experiences of a culture shock was sitting, was standing. So my, the friend that helped me out, uh, he had an IT business, but he lived in another town and he just, he, most of his clients were in this area. So he said, like, I'm going to rent an apartment and you can just live there if you can help me with the IT, manage the office kind of thing while I go do. So it was he was doing me a favor. But he's also somebody who's used to shopping at Whole Foods and I'm not. I don't know if you know Whole Foods, but it's a it's a very mm. nice upscale supermarket. So He takes me there, you know, go pick out stuff that you want. And I stood in the aisle that had grains and there's gotta be like 50 different kinds of rice and beans. And I, I was so over, I was a deer in the headlights. I didn't know what to do. I was like, what the hell, (laughs) like, what is this? This is just so, so that's like my first impression of coming back here. Um, It it was, it was hard. And, but then, but then I'm also, again, being in Trenton, um, the community is mostly black and Latino and I feel much more at home with that. And the Latino, there's actually a lot of Costa Ricans in this area who I have not met, but when I'm face painting and I do a lot of face painting in Trenton, I get to speak Spanish and they're like, wait, how did you, you know, your Spanish is, because I speak Spanish more as a native than as a foreigner And it's not just the language, I understand the culture. So I can really connect with people on on that level too. So it took a long time. It took a long time to come back. Um, And I think like going back to Costa Rica uh, last year was really wonderful, but as I said, like the the infrastructure uh, had so many people move in for the tourism, for the money to make with tourism that they started building as if it was still back in San Jose. So they're building buildings of concrete and, oh, we, we don't like this dirt path. So, so they took the charm, the rustic charm of it away. Um, and I understand it because, believe me, the, the sand there is super fun. It gets into everything. The mosquitoes, like there's a lot to deal with, but that's the beauty of the rainforest as well um, is the nature, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. They all go together. So I prefer the more rustic. Look and feel
0: of it. I feel you. Yeah. I had a similar uh, situation with the repatriation question, which is my mom taking me to Trader Joe's and saying, "Pick out some lettuce." And there's like 30 different bags of like. <laughs> I was like, oh. I had I had like an anxiety <laughs> attack. I was like, "You pick. I got to go outside. I can't be in here. It's too yeah. overwhelming." <laughs> yeah,
1: cabbage. That was it. You know?
0: so. Exactly. Um, so now what? I mean, I know you're you're diving into this um, digital side of your art. And you're yeah. trying to, I've seen your Etsy. It's beautiful. You have oh, a lot of cool stuff going on there. So, yeah, maybe tell the audience a little bit more about like Monotigre designs.
1: Okay, so Monotigre, so back in Costa Rica, I made things for my shop, and a couple of things I made were like little magnets. I would paint on plywood. And when I came up here, um, I had, so I say that because a lot of the style that I was painting back then is, is what's kind of morphed into what I paint now. Uh, so I had my first solo show up here at a bar restaurant in Trenton uh, in uh, in 2015 or 2016 and put up about 40 pieces of work and sold 22 of them, which is over the month. But it was, it was really, I mean, my prices were pretty, one of my friends' like your prices are too low. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm selling my art. This is awesome. Um, and one of the two of the pieces that I did was actually on, on uh, MDF board, uh, six feet long, it was a woman, one was called Ocean Love, and it was a face with long blue hair flowing that was kind of the ocean. And in her in her hair, I had painted sea turtles and starfish that were flowing through. And on the edge of the board, uh, I cut, my son actually said, you know, you should do this, which is another, he's artistic as well. But he said, you know, cut the shape of her hair off the board so that it just flows better. And then I had another friend cut sea turtles in in wood shapes so it was like her hair was flowing and the sea turtles were going off her hair so it was a dramatic piece it was as i said six feet long and then then five sea turtles going off or three three sea turtles i think it was and then the other one was a woman with dreadlocks and same thing we cut the hair so that the you know was cut out and then we had butterflies going off of her hair so those pieces didn't sell but everybody was like do you sell those turtles do you sell the butterflies you know would you be able to sell this piece i was like oh okay you know and so i started I sold them that way and then uh in that time i met another gentleman who's the biggest he's the sign maker he he does from hand-painted guild letter signs to these big you know commercial size signs and he has going to his workshop for me is like disneyland it's got he's got every possible equipment right to build and make things and one of the things he has is this, i think it's called a cmg it's a router Mm. Uh, so I would, I would design my, you know, make my shapes or whatever that I want to cut out on paper. We'd scan them into his computer. He'd program it all, put fit them on a, you know, on, on digitally on a board and put it to the machine. And it would cut everything, you know, things that took an hour to cut one. I was now cutting 50 shapes in an hour. So that's how that started. Uh, and I have starfish, butterflies, hummingbirds, nautilus, uh, all, all sorts of stuff. And I hand paint them. And that for me is um, it's very therapeutic. I'll put music on and just paint and just listen. And and, and I can do them uh, pretty quickly. Uh, they're, I usually work on a, on a few at a time. Uh, I am going to be teaching a Skillshare class uh, doing a birdhouse of the same style. So I do those. And the digital art aspect, uh, I have not done anything yet with it. But my goal is to be able to you know, take my style and make it digitally. I'm, I'm still in that learning process. I'm still learning how to do things in the technical part of it. But would be to have that up. Possibly, uh, at this point, just working with POD uh, mm-hmm. sites and getting designs up. And, and then my artwork, which I paint and do shows when they're available.
0: hmm yeah. It's interesting your story in the contrast of, you know, the, the jungle life for so long and then coming back to, I guess, what we call like modern society now to a certain extent Yeah, and stumbling into the digital nomad scene, you know, which.
1: If if, if COVID didn't have it, I don't know if I would have done it. I I'd kind of been toying a little bit when I first got here with graphic design. Cause I, as I said, like, because I didn't have, I didn't know what that was, uh, but in, one of my friends up here, you know, as I started get up, was like, "You did all that, you designed that that's graphic design, that's what you're doing." and I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh so I did take a few classes at one of the local community colleges just for fun, and I enjoyed it, but I was like, "I don't think I want to do this as a living, but I like having those tools in my arsenal that that to me is always a you know a plus to have more abilities right so so we'll see you know with the, with the digital art where it goes."
0: Well, yeah, when you uh, start making enough to live on the road as long as you choose, because I know it's not going to be a full-time lifestyle for you, but you definitely have the desire to be out for months at a time. Oh, yeah. I'll have to have you back on, and you can oh, tell cool. us how oh, you're doing you. it. But if you could speak to one audience member who's heard your story and is intrigued, you know, might want to take that that flight to a country where they have that kind of lifestyle, or even just start that first online business. Is there something you could say to them to maybe motivate them, inspire them to take that first step if they have a little bit of fear or apprehension?
1: Just don't be frightened. You know, it, it is good to research if you can. Uh, I think one of the things I heard on your, your podcast with Kat uh, was her talking about connecting with these other groups, communities that do this. So, you know, you move into a new area and you find other people similar to you that are, you know, because Anywhere you live, like like Costa Rica, they are incredible. It's a beautiful country. The people are wonderful. But if you go into the city, there's crime like anywhere else. And back to the story about you know the tourist saying, "Oh, we want to live here. I love it. And, oh, this is wonderful." I'm like, come here for a couple months. You know, get to know the people. Get to know your community because you are a foreigner. You're you are a gringa. And for me, I mean, I I remember this one occasion. Um, last couple of years that I was living there, we had coordinated to get vets to come out to spay and neuter all the dogs and cats. And so I was helping out. I was, I, I, I have horses and dogs. Um, I had to be my own vet for very minor things. I uh, would call in a vet to help me with bigger things, but I'm, you know, I'm used to doing a lot of different things. So I'm sitting there, you know, waiting for some surgery or whatever going on. And this guy's, comes over sits next to me like hey you know who are you kind of thing and you know how do you like Costa Rica? You know, talking to me and talking to me in Spanish very broke, very like slowly, as if I don't speak Spanish. And so I answered him, I said, I've been here for a while. And he's, well he's like, well is this your first time to Tornecuro? I'm like, uh no, I've been here for 20 years. He's like, no, I live here. You haven't been here for 20 years. <laughs> I'm like, dude, yes I have. You're not from here. I'm from here. But you know, again, I am six feet tall and blonde. I do not blend in at all. And I had to always be kind of overcoming that stereotype, unfortunately, of all gringas are wealthy and all gringas, women are looking to have sex. That was the other thing to the point. I had to learn how to shake hands. If I shook hands with a man, a firm handshake and eye contact, they thought I wanted to have sex with them. Mm. So culturally I had to learn to do the lip fish hand and look away look down eyes you know just and be completely which is so not my personality but you know you so that so my my always will be my advice will be to really understand the culture and even if it's things like that that are really kind of gross you know like that's not right it's not your country be respectful you know you don't have to to completely assimilate into all that but Sometimes it's better not to get into one argument. You know, again, you're not in your own country. So I just, you know, research what you're going, where you're going. If you can meet people that are already there, do so. If you are going to invest in anything money-wise, be really careful. And that get to know because there's a lot of scams going. I know a lot of people who've bought property in Costa Rica and squatters moved in and they lost it all. And I'm like, who did you have watching your property while you were back in the States for three years? What did you expect? You, you can't do that. People... And squatter rights have more rights in, in a way. So just discernment, you know, and, and get off the whole honeymoon stage, you know, appreciate all that and enjoy that. But, you know, have a reality check as well.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Antoinette. It was such a pleasure. It's been awesome. Awesome. Antoinette, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure hearing your story. As I said in the intro, I just got lost in my imagination. The the creative juices just started flowing as I started thinking about all the different lifestyle options that I've experienced and that I can still create for myself. I love Costa Rica. I love Nicaragua. I love Central America. I love South America. I can definitely see myself making that home base at some point full time and then using it as a jumping off point to the rest of the parts of the world that I love. So thank you again for inspiring me, inspiring my audience, and sharing your story. Folks, head on over to Mono Tigre Designs. Check out our artwork. If you're a first-time listener, hit subscribe. If you leave a comment or rate Misfits and Rejects, that really helps us in the rankings of finding Misfits and Rejects more easily when people are searching for this type of podcast. So do me a huge favor, head down to the bottom of your iTunes app or whatever you're listening to this on. Leave a five-star review and a little comment of some kind. iTunes is the best place to do that because Spotify doesn't really allow you to do that, but it's all appreciated. I think you all are so very beautiful. Thank you for joining me and I'll see you in next week's episode, Monday morning, 9 a.m. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you.